introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I'm your host, Tony Walsh, and welcome in. This is going to be part two of our China Influence episode. The first one we talked about how Kung Fu has influenced Hollywood. Today we're going to talk about how China has influenced more than just the movies. Um, just more than artistically the movies. I, you really look at how China's influencing all aspects of how Hollywood is making their movies today. And it's um it's not as overt. You know, you come in, now you can see everybody kung fu. Everybody was kung fu fighting. Dun, 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 dun. Now everybody's kung fu fighting, right, in the movies. But now it's different the way China's influencing Hollywood. And it's influencing Bond a great deal. I would say since Skyfall, once they once they got a taste of that billion dollar box office, and that was in direct correlation to one the marketing they did in, in uh, for Skyfall with the London Olympics and all that, but it definitely was also the fact that they got into the China market. And when you get into that China market, the China market saves Spectre too. And you look at these Fast and Furious movies, they're they're not making money in the U.S. or really in Europe. They are making money in Asia. That's where these Fast and Furious movies are making their money. So what when you see the evolution of where Bond goes, where it's going, and you're going to see it in No Time to Die, you're going to see that No Time to Die, Dr. No, if he is supposed to be Dr. No, he's supposed to be Chinese, and he's definitely Japanese now. You're going to see this. You're going to see it in Skyfall, how they had to change rewrites. You're going to see it in Spectre. You're going to see all James Bond has to kowtow to China because that market is going to own it, and you're going to see it in all the movies going forward. To understand how China is influencing the movies today, you have to understand how the people in power in China began. So the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has been has had a unique journey compared to the rest of the communist nations that rose in the 20th century. Founded in 1921, the CCP came about after the inspiration of the Bolshevik Revolution and the studies of Marx. Led by Chinese youth, the CCP came to fruition as the fallen Qing Dynasty, Qing Dynasty, fell. Led by Chinese youth, the CCP came to fruition as the fallen Qing dynasty fell. As the nation fell to a power struggle, the CCP came in contest with the Kuomintang. Again, I'm sorry. I'm just not good at this Chinese stuff, but it's, I'm going to use acronyms. CCP is communist, and then the Kuomintang is KMT. Over who was the rightful leaders of China? The KMT were nationalist, while the CCP were communist. The KMT were more, they wanted to deal with the West. The communists obviously wanted nothing to do with the West. The two agreed to work together to create a unified China at all costs. They had some success taking over warlords throughout the country until in 1927. By 1927, these conflicting ideas proved to be too much to come to the table and come to an amicable agreement. The KMT leaders had multiple CCP leaders removed or assassinated in Shanghai. It was during this time that a leader named Mao Zedong was avoiding these CCP gatherings and instead focused on world China. So there was all sorts of meetings like, oh, come to, come to Shanghai, we'll start reckoning this out. And even though the CCP at the time, the other leadership, urged Mao Zedong to come into these meetings, he could smell a trap. And he didn't want to go, and he stayed instead, and he f- kept fighting in the rural areas of China. So when they got to Shanghai, um, the KMT had a bunch of CCP either removed or assassinated. And then as Mao stayed away from that area, he was able to survive. By not going to this, this not, not only achieved, this achieved two things. One, he avoided the fate of many of his CCP brethren. And two, he got the he got his finger on the pulse of rural China. The KMT was not done their fight. 
After several years of fighting CCP forces, they had pushed them all the way into the Hunan province. Once back at the Huan, Hunan, Huan, Hunan province, Mao convinced the party to put him in charge and kick out Otto Braun, a German who was currently implementing their strategy. Mao convinced party leadership that what worked for Germany and Germans would not work for Chinese. Chinese had to stay Chinese, and what worked for the China was going to work, be implemented by Chinese. So Braun was ultimately kicked out, and Mao took over. With Mao in charge, the Long March began. Now, the Long March was from Hunan province to Shangji, a 9,000-kilometer-long journey through some of China's toughest landscape. With what began as a force of 87,000, we was reduced to 10,000 upon arrival. It was on this march that once again Mao got to learn the countryside and gain followers along the way. By 1935, the march was over. The CCP had regained much of its losses from 1927. The two parties continued their fight until Japan, led by General Tojo, launched a full-scale invasion on China. Tojo, suffering from a case of megalomania, had brought Japan into the fight with everyone, Korea, China, and eventually the U.S. At this time, after thousands of years of Japan being the weaker of the two, Japan was finally in the position of power over the Chinese. It was this newfound superiority that Japan had they could not wait to use against their bully neighbor. Facing this new threat, the CCP and the KMT were forced to join forces, albeit begrudgingly. Also, this is one of the key recruiting points for the CCP and the Communist Chinese Party, is that they sold that if you join the Communist Party, you get to go fight the Japanese, which is something that they were more than willing to do. Not knowing really the ramifications of what they were doing, really a lot of these people just wanted to go fight the Japanese. So they used it as both a rallying cry and a recruitment cry. China was now fully in World War II and locked in a world with Japan. After years of fighting, the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, thus ending World War II and the Japan invasion. After years of cooperation, fighting a common enemy, the CCP and KMT attempted to create a unified China again. The differences were still too deep, though, and in 1946, China promptly went right back into a civil war. In the years that preceded this civil war, the CCP had grown exponentially among the people, and the once powerful KMT had been weakened. After three years of fighting the KMT, the KMT lost and sought exile in the island of Taiwan in 1949. Still to this day, the status of Taiwan remains in flux, and China refuses to acknowledge it as its own state. The new Top Gun movie that's coming out, that they had to change Tom Cruise's jacket. He had to take off the Japan flag, and he had to take off the Taiwan flag, or else China wouldn't let the movie be in in, in the wouldn't let the movie actually be released. Just a small, small instance. I guess I guess changing the flag on an iconic jacket of Tom Cruise in an iconic movie may seem small, but it's it also should be seem small that he's just wearing a flag on his jacket. With Mao and the CCP firmly in charge of China, it truly became a communist state. Taking lessons from Stalin, Mao quickly forced his way into ultimate power. Mao began taking away land from landowners. Communism 101, Land Redistribution and Land Reform Act. From there, he took control over all the grain, all the farm, and all the production of the people, and made it the state's property. He would then trade the food to the Soviets for machinery and oil. The Soviets, in hopes to keep a strong partnership with another communist nation, sold oil and machinery to China at a highly discounted rate. This led to massive famine and starvation of the people of China. The mix of people not knowing how to fully till the land and maximize the output, with the using of the states, um, with the using of the state to trade food and supplies with the Soviets, created despair for the people of China. As Mao continued to rule China, 
he implemented a program called the Great Leap Forward. In his plan, Mao sought to bring China to the forefront through controlling all means of production. He exhausted China's resources. In an overambitious endeavor, where he believed the death and sacrifice of his people were needed to bring China to the forefront, Mao was bringing China further and further down the path of economic despair, falling further and further behind their neighbors, Japan. Mao died in 1976, and the CCP was in a state of flux. Luckily for China, and the people of China, they realized that Mao's sense of communism needed a change if they were to compete with the rest of the world. China began opening up the country to foreign trade. China, while vast in size, does not have the natural resources needed to compete in the global economy. The need for oil and other commodities meant that China needed to be opened up. The rigid form of communism was failing and needed to be changed. And you look at it, this is a really key pivotal moment for China because China could easily be, have gone the way of North Korea, where North Korea never said, okay, we need to, we need, we have to change this a little bit because the idea of what we're doing is failing miserably. China didn't. China was like, okay, well, we're going to have to, we're going to have to relax this economic sanction. We're going to need things from the West. We're going to need other things to compete. And they were smart enough to realize that. So they, they relaxed their, their sanctions on their own people, their economic, their all that stuff. The only thing that really stayed was the censorship and the control of the ruling party. That didn't change. From 1970s to the 2010s, China went through a series of leaders that kept China moving forward. But again, they kept their, their control on the power. In 2012, China found their next strong leader, Xi Jinping. President Xi was born of a party power his father being a powerful politician in his own right. Xi has spurned the balance of power that has been placed before him in years since Mao. Instead, he seems keen on becoming president in life. He even has pretty much uh, he paved the way for himself to be president for life because they had implemented a policy that two five-year terms in China, and Xi did away with that, and now he's pretty much in a position to be like uh, Vladimir Putin, you know, president for life idea. Xi has quelled competition and is steadfastly moving away from reliance on foreign technologies into producing their own. China has been world-renowned as a powerhouse manufacturer of goods. Xi views China's potential as more. Xi's Belt and Road Policy has been an ambitious effort to bring forth $800 billion worth of infrastructure to China. No longer wanting to have to look for U.S. for technology, China wants it for themselves. Whether by innovation or by hacking, China is determined to do so. Xi doesn't see himself as... He doesn't want China to become the rust belt of, you know, northeast United States where, you know, the Ohio's, the western New York's, the, Pen the western Pennsylvania, stuff like that, where you see all sorts of rundown factories and manufacturing. They don't want to be that anymore. They want to have their own. They want to have their technology. They want to be the forefront. They want to be what Japan is. They want to be what even South Korea has become. So they don't want to just be big manufacturers and then have to rely on um, the U.S. for main technology, stuff like that. That's why you're seeing so many hacking attacks on these companies, trying to get the information, trying to get the secrets, trying to get all that stuff. But again, all these advancements in the economy have had the caveat of the government censorship and control. Any narrative that goes against the CCP is forbidden and punished. This is showing itself in much of the world areas today. If you were, if you listen to the Tomorrow Never Dies episode, Thomas Felix Creighton told the... Uh, the story about Winnie the Pooh. And I, if you haven't heard, I'll just repeat it again because it's a fascinating story to me. And one of the, and a political cartoonist had made a uh, political cartoon showing President Barack Obama as Eeyore and President Xi as Winnie the Pooh. 
as such, President Xi didn't find that funny, and he banned Winnie the Pooh from China. I mean, that's the kind of that's the kind of insanity that's going on there. So starting in the mid 2000s, Hollywood was making strides in getting into China market. With 1.4 billion people in the country, is a vast market with huge potential for profit. As you know, U.S. companies were amassing large amounts of wealth by kowtowing to China demands to get their services and goods in the country. Hollywood wanted to on the action. DMG Entertainment, a group founded by Dan Mintz, Bing Wu, and Peter Zhao, have made huge strides in getting movies into China. This came with a price, though. To get China, you have to get through the censor machine. This censorship has been showing its influences in movies today. No longer do you see... I mean, I want anybody to tell me the last time they saw a movie where the Chinese were the villain. Just sit here for one second. I'm going to be quiet for just one second. Think about the last time you saw a Chinese person as a, as an, as a villain. Still waiting? I'll wait. Exactly. I mean, it has been a very long time since China has been a villain. I mean, movies can't even mention China in a poor light for fear of retribution. Numerous examples of this can be seen. I talked about Top Gun, uh, Maverick again. Tom Cruise's jacket had to be changed. In Doctor Strange, the Ancient One was played by a white woman. The Me Too and Woke movement called this whitewashing. What it was actually was is that the Ancient One was actually from Tibet. Tibet, another conflict area for China. So they couldn't have the existence of a Tibetan um, monk be the hero or anything like that. So they had to be a white woman to kowtow to China. And in Skyfall, scenes involving the killing of a Chinese guard and a torture by Chinese agents were removed from the film. Macau was made to look like a booming metropolis full of vibrancy and decadence. Curiously, the Macau child prostitution was allowed to stay in. So apparently the Chinese government is okay with child sex trade, but not of a Chinese guard seeing tortured again yeah I, I have my theory on that I, I really think it's this is my put on my tinfoil hat right. everyone put on your tinfoil hat I got mine on firmly now I really think that the sex um, trade industry is such a booming like it's such a lucrative trade market I almost think that it was like advertising they're okay with that just because of how patriarchal the society is to begin with um, but that's my that's my tinfoil conspiracy hat. While plot holes are one thing, it is telling how much a company can be swayed by China. This really came to the forefront when the NBA executive Daryl Morey tweeted out support for Hong Kong protesters. Hong Kong has been in a fight for autonomy from China, and they're seen as like a petulant thorn in China's side. The NBA is enormous in China, accruing vast amounts of fans and followers. Really, this has become Yao Ming, seven foot seven center, paved the way for NBA to see, be seen in China. Yao Ming played for the Houston Rockets during his brief career. So this tweet set the NBA ablaze. China demanded action and an apology and denouncing of the tweet. This is from the same league that was at the forefront for the social justice warrior stuff. The police reform has Black Lives Matter on the court itself, right? This isn't a uh, organization or an association that's scared of going into social justice issues. But on this one... They kowtowed instantly. LeBron James was like, oh, pro-China. There was so many memes, so many uh, articles with LeBron James just being, you know, dogged on. For one, being social justice on one thing, but when it came to affecting his pocket on the other, he really kowtowed and said, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm all about China. 
easy for me to say. I don't have a billion dollars on the line. You know, I, I don't know what I would do in the same situation. I'd like to think I would, if I'm going to stand for a principle, you stand for a principle and not when it's convenient. But again, it's not going to cost me $250 million at least to, uh, to stand on that principle. And the NBA really relies on China now because it's gotten, that's their, I mean, the, the salaries in the, in the market that they can get into. And the Houston Rockets, who Daryl Morey is the GM for, was the, the team that Yao Ming played for. So when he put out that tweet, you've got the biggest um, fan base in China being livid for him. And it wasn't even like a derogatory thing. He just was like, stand with Hong Kong. Or I support Hong Kong pro- uh, right to protest. Is that such a bad thing to say? Is that such a is that demanding of, uh, you know, ostracization, denouncing, and getting the guy fired? I mean, the, you know, all this was a simple tweet, but that's the power that China has. That's the influence it has. And in this socially woke, you know, association, they quickly kowtowed and apologized, and uh, Daryl Morey was forced to apologize, all because they said we support the right for Hong Kong to protest. So can you imagine what it's like behind closed doors? In Hollywood, when they're trying to do this ministry of propaganda, when they're trying to get these movies in, into China, the things that they have to go through, the hoops they have to jump through, the script changes that they have to endure. And with China being the most populous country in the world, these foreign markets are relying more and more to have access to China. As film and media move forward, the China factor grows. And it will be interesting to watch how Hollywood adapts. It is one thing to be artistically influenced by Kung Fu, right? It's one thing to have an influence, artistry, change the hand hand can combat, have a genre come in. But it's an entirely different having a nation tell you what you can and can't talk about in about movies. The CCP and every communist regime realized long ago how important propaganda and film are to keeping the narrative how they want. The CCP and every communist regime realized long ago how important propaganda and film are to keeping the narrative how they want. You look at the movie Inglorious Bastards, they talk about that. That's what the whole movie is about the Ministry of Propaganda for the Nazi Party. The Nazis had it. Soviets had it. You know, China, North Korea. Kim Jong-il is a giant movie buff. Kim Jong-il's favorite movie series was said to be James Bond. He loved um, he loved all the James Bond films. He thought Sean Connery was his favorite actor. He even had his secret agents um, go across the world, and they had cyanide capsules in, in uh, cigarette and cigarettes, and when they got captured, one of they one of the the North Korean agents actually ate the cyanide. They understand film, they understand propaganda, they understand these things. And the U.S. does the same thing. You know, we want to talk about how it's weird and glorious bastards to see a German killing all these Allied forces and the Nazis, and them going, yeah, yeah, as Nazis like cheering the death of the Allied forces. At the same point, the movie American Sniper came out. And you've got this American shooting terrorists, right? I don't know if you want to glorify either in film. It's very hard to watch the reality. And you don't want to be... You always want to think you're on the right side. And the justification of a, of a killing a war is justified. Is It's all in perspective, right? One man's martyr is another man's enemy. So to help sort this all out, welcome in uh, my good friend Thomas Felix Creighton. He has his own podcast coming up called British Culture. I'll be on Never Dies. And uh, really great stuff, as always. Always great having him on. So help me welcome in Tomix Felix Creighton from IG, Fleming Never Dies, and also his new podcast, British Culture, I'll Be On Never Dies. I just can't
Welcome back in, Thomas Felix Creighton. Like I said, the voice of an ant and the, the jawline to prove it. And um, what we're talking about today is kind of we've seen a lot of the influence in um, movies today. So mm. we talk about initially it was just artistically, like kung fu comes in and then kind of takes over, and then you see it on everything. All hand-to-hand -hand combat in movies now are more based on martial arts rather than the old swashbuckle into the moon, right? Now we're looking at yeah. Um, Things like things. So that was artistically, but now we're seeing things like the scripts being changed and and differences in the movies. Um, can you just kind of talk about how that's played out? Yeah. So we really, uh, I think you might have said earlier that we have the kung fu influence coming through really in the 70s with uh, Bruce Lee or Lee Shaolong. Um, that was really kind of broke into the Western market. Uh, we've got some kung fu, of course, in The Man with the Golden Gun, which is in fact. Taekwondo. The two girls are Taekwondo champions. Uh, they oh, really? reference karate, which is Japanese. They do Taekwondo, which is Korean. Um, and of course, it's influenced by uh, Bruce Lee or Lee Shaolong, uh, who is Chinese. So we get quite the mixture there. <laughs> I like to imagine the two nieces are actually sampling all of the different martial arts and Taekwondo happens to be their favorite. <laughs> <laughs> that whole scene is just like, it's a very odd part of Man with the Golden Gun. Just kind of doesn't fit. Like all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Roger Moore and a Gee, like it just doesn't work for me. But you know, whatever. How do you feel about good, Man with the Golden Gun? Out of curiosity, is it one of your movies or no? Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorites. It's one I saw as a child again and again. Um, probably helped by the fact that my whole family, except me, had been to Thailand like about the time of filming, uh, had been to James Bond Island when nobody else was going. So I'm in the right region of the world. I guess I could go easily, but I've heard it's overrun by tourists and I, that doesn't appeal to me so much. Um, <laughs> but You were there before it was cool, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And I've got the whole of Hong Kong to explore and I've been to many, I think most of the locations now. I'm, I'm still trying to find the location of Hong Kong I haven't been to. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of The Man of the Golden Gun. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it's one of those movies where I kind of like, I don't know why I like it, because I shouldn't like it. I watch it and I'm like, why do I like this? But I like it. You know what I mean? Like, why am I enjoying this? Yeah. But I know a lot of people hate it, but I'm like, I kind of enjoy it for some odd reason. I think it's and, a lighthearted adventure. And I think when you're a kid, especially, um, you want the light films. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you might have said in the last podcast that, you know, Daniel Craig is dark, it's gritty, that you said there's even grit on the grit. Um, <laughs> and I think when you're a kid, that's just not the feeling. <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, as a kid, I just loved it. Exactly. I think as a, as a child, you know, he, he's a fun character. The Man of the Golden Gun is a fun character. I think Britt Eklund plays a fun character. There's a lot of just yeah. fun characters in it. Even the, the gun maker in Macau. Um, mm -hmm. he, he's just a really curious, interesting guy. I think I well, heard on uh, he like James him. Bond Complex. I think I heard on James Bond Complex. I think that's where I heard it from, is that the guy who plays... Um, Nick Nag, the voice, was actually the French guy who for Bugs Bunny in, in uh, Canada. So, <laughs> weird, well, weird factoid, right? <laughs> Surely Wile E. Um, Coyote would have been more appropriate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so we're kind of talking about, like, what do you see as far as, like, because um, I think it's interesting when you look at Skyfall, right? And mm. Skyfall had a lot of edits that went through the Ministry of Propaganda, right? And yeah. 
there's scenes cut. There was some some security guard scenes. There was some fights. There was a, a Chinese car getting killed that was taken out. But they left the Macau sex trade thing in there. Um, why, why would yeah. you think that they would leave that in there as a curious factor? I mean, it's, first of all, it's not in the People's Republic of China uh, in the main governance system. It's a special autonomous region. Um, so in that sense, you could say it's kind of a further distance from most of Chinese people watching it. So perhaps you mm -hmm. could say, yeah, in these autonomous regions, bad stuff happens. Maybe it's the Portuguese influence. In Fleming visited Macau uh, and he wrote about it in a book called Thrilling Cities. He talks about the sex trade there and uh, mm -hmm. what is it? Happiness Mile uh, that I've been to is now a super lovely historic area you can just admire the architecture um, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay Ian Fleming talks about the, gambling you, and the, the architecture is there. why you went Thomas I got you I got you cool Thomas got you, you <laughs> architecture you're a big architecture you got, got you. me covered thank you so much <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I guess it's a semi-autonomous region one that's had a lot of foreign influence or Portuguese influence really um yeah I, I guess they'd be willing to keep that one detail mm -hmm. whereas yeah, the, what happens to... with the security guard is on the mainland I always had this kind of theory that uh, it was actually just because they were doing sex tourism and sex tourism is such a lucrative industry that maybe they were uh, leaving it in there as maybe uh, as a little advertisement that, hey, you know, come to Macau and get uh, get your sex tourism on. <laughs> maybe it's architectural tourism. Maybe that's what it is. Architectural tourism. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when you go... And gambling. <laughs> And, and bungee jumping. The biggest bungee jump in uh, China is in Macau. So if you want to do your golden eye moment, uh, Macau is the place to do it. Um, <laughs> I came across a Chinese senior manager who'd done the bungee jump. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. Uh, we're happy to do it. He said, I was scared for my life. I didn't want to do it. But the CEO decided we'd have a team building to Macau. And the CEO said, everyone has to do a bungee jump with me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what, 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 what kind of company is that? That's a ton of counting. Chinese camp, Chinese company, when a Chinese boss says we're all doing this routine building, you're all doing it. So, uh, hey, it's your off day. You're coming hiking with me. No, you're not. <laughs> People get mad about going for like happy hours. I can imagine having to go to a bungee jump now. That's great. <laughs> so when you yeah. when you go to see a movie now, do you... Um, I know you were talking about how you kind of have to look at how, where, if you want to see like the real more version or the um, censored version, yeah. do you, how, how do you, how do you go with that now? So I look at Internet Movie Database just to check the runtime and then I'll check the local cinema for the runtime and see what the disparity is. Um, so for how example, for Kingsman. How often is there a big disparity? Um, it's normally a couple of minutes here or there. Yeah. Um, it's unusual, like Kingsman had a really big difference um but it's normally a few minutes difference and one might say to try and normalize this there's even differences between the edits for example of die another day um has what is it more sex in the british version and more violence in the american version um so in china it's just a similar difference but a little bit bigger <laughs> i'd rather i'd rather have the british version and so i, I kind of see that the um it's almost like hollywood's kind of been trained now like we're not even going to bother putting the chinese as the villains so you look at it, it's still the Russians as the yeah constantly yeah. the Russians as the are the enemies in Hollywood movies. And do you think that that changes the perception? We're looking at even this election that came in, and everyone's like Russia's the bad guy, and it's even still in the U.S. and everything else, Russia's the bad guy. When actually the real bear growing is China. Do you think that that influences the public mm. paradigm in that, or, and, and should it be changed, or how do you think Hollywood should cater to 
China's demands? Well, they make uh, their films for an audience. We used to have more Chinese villains. I mean, we mentioned the man with the golden gun. I mean, he gets to have his beautiful island because he does the odd job for the Chinese government. So I guess that kind of thing we wouldn't see anymore. Uh, we might see it replaced by another government. Would it be replaced by North Korea? Would it be replaced by Japan? Uh, I don't think the Japanese are too, too concerned in the same way. Um, I noticed that Safin in the No Time to Die trailers, he's wearing a very Japanese looking outfit to my mind, not a Chinese outfit. Yeah. And he's got a very Japanese looking garden. Um, so if there is a Dr. No throwback, they're changing Dr. No's nationality from Chinese to Japanese. That could be for the audience here. Oh, absolutely. And you would never see like a Goldfinger again. You know, you couldn't even have yeah. it. Could, that would it have was, to be completely changed. Uh, which was Bert Kwok. Um, so Bert Kwok was a, a Shanghaiese actor who came to the UK and managed to get the role of the Chinese person in any British film ever made because he was the British actor uh, who was Chinese. So he was a, the villain in Goldfinger. He was also in You Only Live Twice, giving the impression that he's just kind of a number two to whoever is the big villain at the time. Um, and then was in The Pink Panther as well. <laughs> so he used to be the... The high point of a film in my family was like, hey, look, it's Bert Kwok. He's always <laughs> working with the baddies. Or Inspector Clouseau. So what other movies have you... Have okay. there been any controversial movies that have gone on as far as... Um, in, in As far as American being sent over? So I think uh, Black Panther was one of the interesting uh, ones in terms of how it was packaged. Because uh, the Chinese poster was very, very different from all the other posters all over the world. Um, so I think uh, the film posters in other countries made a very great deal out of this being an African-American and uh, black British cast. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the Chinese film posters that I saw, um, generally you can't see a single black individual on the film poster. So you really? saw Black Panther in the super suit, so you can't see his ethnicity. Uh, and then the two white actors. Martin Freeman were quite prominent on the poster and there's normally no other character. Um, so the, the African side of the film was very much downplayed when they were selling it. Um, and even Chinese people I knew rated it very, very low. Um, they just were not interested in the key selling point in the rest of the world. Um, it, it's kind of interesting because they used it as such a social commentary, right? I mean, you look at mm. how Black Panther became more than a movie, it became this, this social commentary about which, which is also kind of weird is that the the storyline for Black Panther is kind of anti the BLM movement, right? I mean, it's almost like the mm. the government wins, right? Yeah. It's it's very yes. It, it's like the uh, it's very much quelling the uh, quelling the rising of something else, right? So it's it's almost an interesting thing that it became this social movement, even though the storyline itself is very anti the social yeah. movement that it's perpetuating. It is interesting, but then if you live in a different society as I do, then the social commentary side of it really falls away. Um, yeah. And as I say, it was not successful here at all. It was the least successful of the Marvel films. Um, and I think the, the cosmetics of it played a role. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's because Disney has really been instrumental. The DMG publishing, DMG entertainment has been instrumental in getting Disney and Marvel into um China and they've almost they have Disney's almost opened the market I think for everybody else. They're the ones that got in there first. 
Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's interesting to look at Disney's treatment of. Uh, sorry, it's interesting to look at Disney's treatment of John Boyega. So he was uh, one of the key actors in Star Wars. So when he was tweeting about Black Lives Matter, Disney was 100% behind him. But when Disney was marketing the Star Wars films to China, I mean, he wasn't on the character posters, uh, the big single issue character posters in China at all. Uh, even though he's a major leading uh, selling point in Western countries, and on when he was in the all cast photos, I mean, he was significantly reduced uh, really so yeah he, he was he was it reduced was, in china it was a weird stance i think for disney to, to to do that i would think that they would it was almost a risk for them to take and i'm surprised they did it i mean I've, you know the mouse yeah. oh you know, mind your business motherfucker oh. like it's really, <laughs> <I can't, laughs> push your phone away motherfucker <laughs> uh the the marvel films i kind of i think finally broke into china um but with the delay in Western films being released now, uh, and there is a question of whether they've lost a lot of ground in that. Um, so Infinity War was huge here, although there was quite a significant proportion of the population I talked to who complained and said they didn't understand who all the people were. But so have you seen the other films? What other films? Uh, so yeah, it's it's always been limited. Even James Bond isn't huge here. It's pretty normal for some not to see a Bond film because they weren't here in like the first wave. You can see them. Uh, you can see them on Chinese websites, but with certain edits. Uh, um, and of course, Game of Thrones uh, was popular here. And you could watch it free on a lot of Chinese websites. Um, but again, they were edited. So no sex, no nudity, not no undue violence, which makes me wonder how long these episodes were in China. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, this, you could get through the series in an afternoon. <laughs> All right, Thomas. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. And as always, such a treat. If you're not following, follow him at Fleming Never Dies, and uh, like I said, check out his new podcast. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a banger. So I'm very excited. It's all about British culture, and um, I don't know if it has much Bond influence, but it definitely is gonna be anything with that Thomas does. I'm I'm in for. So really excited stuff. And uh, as always, give him a follow. So thank you guys for coming in. This has been um, part two, the China influence, and I think that it's interesting. I think when you notice it, when you start to really look at how China and Hollywood is kowtowing and how the NBA is. And when you really start to just kind of notice things, you're seeing it a lot in, in culture today. So culture, business, and as you as you go through life, I think you, after listening to this episode, you probably notice things in your everyday life. You're like, well, that's kind of odd. And then when you really start to notice, you, you really start to see things. So, yeah, it, it, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you guys enjoyed this two-part episode, The China Influence. And uh, as always, guys, stay so positive out there. Enjoy. And if you haven't, like, follow, and subscribe. All right, guys. Thank you so much. And if you haven't got your merch, get your merch. Get your merch. Uh, thank you so much. As always, Quantum of History, Donnie Waldron. Stay positive. Enjoy. Take care.